Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The jazz session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. This week's guest is composer and bandleader Dave Rivello. Here's music from his new album, Facing the Mirror. My guest is composer and bandleader Dave Ravello. He's got a new album out called Facing the Mirror, and it is uh, my pleasure to welcome Dave to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jason. Let's let's ask the, the obvious question, you know, right off the top. Why, in this day and age, a, a large ensemble? Is it is it masochism? Is it something else? What's the what's the reason? Uh, the reason is, and I don't think about the, the time uh, period that we're in, the reason is that I just love, I've always loved larger ensembles, and as a composer, a larger palette to create my music from. I guess kind of like a painter, uh, you know, it might be cheaper to have just a red and a can of blue, but I need more cans of paint than that. Now, your large ensemble is um, not, it's not a typical one. You've arrived at a pretty creative instrumentation. Can you talk about what that is and, and how you got to this point, this particular palette of colors? Sure. Uh, I thought about it for a long time when I when I started the band. Uh, now, believe it or not, I guess it's about 17 years ago. And uh, when I I wanted to, I had finished at Eastman with my master's degree, and I started thinking about putting together my own band to play my original work, and and started dreaming about what what my perfect ensemble would be to write for, to write basically my music for the rest of my life for. So the way that I kind of thought about it is that uh, I love alto saxophone, but I love soprano saxophone more. And I love baritone saxophone, but I like I love bass clarinet more, and also the mobility of bass clarinet compared, for me at least, to the baritone sax. So my reads ended up being soprano saxophone, tenor sax, and bass clarinet. The tenor just, just had to be there for me, and each of them plays flute and clarinet for the most part. The, the soprano plays flute. And the tenor plays flute and clarinet, and the bass clarinet plays clarinet as a double. 
And then for the brass, uh, because of my huge love and, and being so influenced by Gil Evans, he always had a tuba player. So I decided on two trombones and a tuba. And for the upper brass, I had had the idea of of having two trumpets and French horn, but two things entered my mind. First was that uh, already having a sort of a non-jazz instrument, a tuba, I wondered how difficult it would be to have a tuba player and find a French horn player and have them swing if need be. And so I thought about it, and then I also thought about the fact that, for me at least, uh, the band plays acoustic as much as possible with no amplification. And the French horn is sort of acoustically built backwards, and so his bell is going the opposite direction. And so what I decided to do was to use two trumpets and a flugelhorn and write for the flugelhorn as if he were a French horn. So that part could actually be transposed to be played by a French horn player in the future if I wanted to do that. And then this typical jazz rhythm section, piano, bass, and drums, I would also have loved to have a guitar player and, and used uh, him in the style like uh, Ben Monder with Maria Schneider's band, but thinking it was one more mouth to feed, and with the choice of either guitar or piano, I felt that I can get more colors out of the piano. So that's pretty much how uh, how the instrumentation came about. I, I debated... Uh whether I was going to bring this up uh, in, when we were doing this interview, but mm-hmm. in the interest of full disclosure, first of all, um, I have known you, uh, you know, kind of uh, on and off, but certainly we've known each other now for, it's coming up fairly close to a decade, and sure. uh, the longest musical night of my life actually occurred uh, in the Dave Ravello Ensemble, <laughs> and uh, I'm just going to have to, I'm just going to tell the story. I normally don't tell anything about myself on the show, but sure. I'm, this time I am, which is that I used to run a jazz radio station in Rochester, New York, and you called me up one night and asked me to sit in on the soprano sax chair in your band, and I yep. refused, yes. strenuously, <laughs> yes. because I knew I could not hack it. I knew that your music was way too tough compared to the music I normally played, which was more of kind of a, like a Latin jazz salsa thing, and I didn't have to read tough charts except, you know, unison horn charts or whatever. I knew mm-hmm. I was going to get destroyed if I tried to sit in your band, and you finally said, listen, if I don't have a soprano sax player, I can't do this gig. Will you, will you please come? So I went. Uh-huh. And I was right in every respect. Your music... Uh, and this, I th- and I'm going to actually lead this now into returning the microphone to you, you but your music is not music that uh, someone can just sit down and read because unlike a t- more typical big band, your music really exposes every single player t- to the audience. Since there aren't like tripled or quadrupled parts, mm-hmm. everybody is out there. And it seems like a you've almost got kind of multiple small ensembles sometimes working together in your music. And so uh, I wanted to kind of ask you about how you arrived at the way you actually put the pieces together, which is, I, to my ear, a fairly novel approach uh, to fitting those pieces together. Yeah. Uh, first of all, you did an incredible job, and you saved my life that night. So <laughs> I just want to go on record that I, I've never forgotten that, nor will I ever. If I, hadn't I knew had... you didn't want to, but you did it because I needed you. If I hadn't had Josh Rutner, a saxophone player, sitting next to me, like kicking me in the shin about every four measures, saying, you're playing this twice as fast as it's supposed to be, <laughs> I would have passed out, I think, during, oh, during no. the first tune. So, I mean, kudos to you, and kudos to everybody in the Ravello band, because this, I mean, this is not like let's sit down and play april in paris this is a whole different level of musicianship that's required but anyway will you talk about putting the elements together i will sure uh well basically you're exactly right what you know what happens in uh, if i write for and i do plenty of writing for a standard size 
big band, for lack of a better word, jazz orchestra. So there's four trumpets, generally four trombones, five reeds in rhythm section. And so there is a lot of doubling that goes on. The trombones and saxes are often, most of the voices are doubled. Maybe the, the lead saxophone voice is not doubled with the trombones, but the rest of the other, the lower four saxes are maybe doubled with the trombone section. And then that alto or lead saxophone voice is doubled with one of the lower trumpets if the whole ensemble is playing. In my case, uh, because of the way that I pared down the ensemble, basically nobody is doubling anything. So everybody's on their own line, unless they're playing something that intentionally I've put them together to strengthen that line. But for the most part, nobody's line is being covered by somebody else. So if you, if you wipe out or something, you know, that, those notes are still there. They're not there anymore. And so the band really, uh, it takes a little while for a new guy to realize kind of his, where he is in the way that I write and the fact that it's got to be really balanced, more so than even, I think, in a standard band where somebody else is probably playing your note if the whole ensemble's playing. And so it takes a little while, but the guys know how to find their place and whether what note they're playing in a particular sonority and uh, adjust to that. So it's, um, it's amazing to me that... that the way that it sounds, and I've gotten so many people, even Maria Schneider, saying, I can't believe how big you can make those nine horns sound. It doesn't sound like anybody's missing from a regular-sized jazz orchestra. Are you helped in that regard by uh, the range of instruments represented? So, I mean, having a tuba as well as the trumpets, having a bass clarinet as well as a soprano sax, does that help kind of expand the, the fullness of the sound? I think that it does. You know, I, I realized at one point uh, on my own that, you know, I, well, I guess I like a lot of bass sound, which I do, but I didn't really think about that when I have the string bass. The left hand of the piano is often doubling the string bass, and then I've got the tuba and the bass clarinet all on the bottom end. And But I really like, not bottom heavy, but I just, I, one of the things that uh, I find that makes me unhappy in listening to other people's recordings is that I just can't hear the bass enough, or a, a band live even, that I just want more of the foundation so that I know what everything is supposed to be stacked on. And especially if I'm writing sort of non non-traditional chords, maybe, that that, that foundation is really important to really know what that bottom note is so that it makes sense that everything that I build on top of that. The other thing that I'm not sure about, uh, I'd have to maybe ask somebody who knows more about acoustics perhaps, but one, maybe a few years ago somebody came up to me, and I never thought about this, but they said, you know, it's really interesting that you have no E-flat instruments in your band because I decided not to have alto and not to have baritone, so I've only got B-flat and concert pitch instruments. And so I don't know if that also contributes kind of to the darker sound that my ensemble usually people say oh you get this really beautiful dark sound out of the band i don't know it wasn't an intention to take the e-flat instruments which are oftentimes maybe a little bit brighter i just wanted soprano i didn't think about that part of it so it's easier to transpose if i'm writing the parts out by hand because you know 
transposing Peralta was always the hard one. <laughs> the uh, it, it's interesting because what what it seems like you've arrived at is a large ensemble in which every member is a soloist. So even not even if they are not improvising, mm-hmm. uh, every every person is playing a a solo line. So you've it seems like you've managed to arrive at a way to fit. I didn't count, but let's say I don't know. It's nine or ten or eleven or twelve guys on stage, mm-hmm. and to have to have everyone have an individual contribution, which seems pretty cool. Yeah, you know, I never really thought about it like that, but I guess that is true. And and sometimes the piano is doubling some of the more important lines that are happening in the band. The piano players generally complain when they're new because there's not a lot of chord symbols in a traditional like there is in traditional big band playing. A lot of times they've got you know, six and seven and eight note voicings where that, you know, I, I'm sure, I make sure that they can actually move their fingers in those directions, but it's, I guess, a little daunting when they open up that book and think, oh, okay, I'm going to sit in with Ravello, and they look at those parts and think, you know, it's more like a classical piano concerto, maybe, or something, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, so they're double there, but yeah, there isn't, they can't rely on the guy next to them or the guy in front of them knowing that, you know, oh, well, that guy's got the same notes I do. And and I, I think there's a clarity and I don't know what the other word would be, just there's something that it makes it unique. And I, I do feel like you're right. I've just thought about it, that everybody's voice, not that they're not important in a larger band, but I really have to have them there. And, you know, it's there's plenty of large ensembles where, okay, well, you know, the the third trombone player, something happened and we couldn't get a sub, but we still play the gig. If I'm missing somebody... We really can't play the gig because there's a hole there, and nobody else is playing that note. And even if the piano is doubling it, it's not going to sonically sound the way that it's supposed to sound. So I want to ask, uh, it's not very often that you the liner notes of an album ever come up in an interview, but in this case, the liner notes for your record were written by Bob Brookmeyer, who mm-hmm. I think most people would acknowledge as one of the great composers and, and orchestrators uh, of the modern age of jazz. And I know that uh, that Bob has been very influential on you as a, as a person and a musician. Can you talk about how you first met Bob Brookmeyer and then how the relationship developed? Well, let's see. I don't remember how many years ago it was now, but it must be at least a dozen, maybe a little bit more. And I had found out that uh, Bob released the CD of his music called Electricity that was, as far as I knew, only available in Europe. And whoever told me about it, I said, well, I don't know how to get that. And they said, well, why don't you just call Brookmeyer? Here's his number. And I thought, well, I don't know. Can you do that even? (laughs) (laughs) That was the first level. And so then I thought, well, I really want to hear his music because, you know, I've often said that the the, uh, first record he did with Mel's band, Mel Lewis's band in 1980, I think it was 1980, called Bob Brookmeyer, Composer, Arranger with Ding Dong Ding and Hello and Goodbye, changed my life in a second. And so, to jump back for a second, at that moment I thought, wow, I hope someday that I could get to meet this guy, Bob Brookmeyer, because he changed my life. So, then I find out about the Electricity record, and I called, and I thought for some reason in my brain that he would be sort of maybe salty and mean, or who knows what, or grouchy. And he was really sweet and super amazing on the phone, super nice. He said, uh, so I said I wanted to... If I, could, I asked him if I could buy a copy of the Electricity record, and he said, oh, I'll just send you one, and... Uh, and uh, actually, he said, I know your name. Manny, Hal- Manny Album has been talking about you for years from coming up to do the Arranger's Holiday and telling me that I had to hear your music. So, uh, 
you know, what I'd like to hear your music sometime. And I'm gonna, so, well, let me break into the story for one second. Tell sure. people who Manny Album uh, is and what the arranger's holiday was. Oh, sorry. Manny Album was an amazing arranger and composer that wrote for so many bands. The Terry Gibbs Dream Band, actually, Maynard, or, yeah, that's right. Terry Gibbs, is that right? Terry Gibbs Dream Band? That's right, yep. Yeah. And the Maynard Ferguson Birdland Dream Band. That's why I got confused. The old band that was a little bit smaller of Maynard's. And everybody under the sun, and just incredible arranger, and what, and a great and very funny guy. And he and Rayburn Wright uh, started, I think, in the '60s, what was called the Arrangers' Holiday at Eastman. And I came in to it at the very tail end of it, and it was a couple weeks long and very intensive. And people came from all over the world if they were accepted and wrote music and didn't sleep and didn't eat for those two weeks, basically. And any music you could write whether it was a piece or four bars, the next day there was a full orchestra, a full big band, and you heard and got everything recorded. And then at the end of that time, uh, they'd bring in a jazz guest artist, like uh, I think the last couple that I remember, Randy Brecker was here, McCoy Tyner was here, and the list is huge. And people would write for the guest artist, and that would be the culminating concert. And so every summer, Manny Album would be up here in residence, along with Rayburn Wright, and that's where I got to know Manny, and Manny was com- really supportive. And so then Bob Brookmeyer and Manny Album were doing the co-teaching the uh, BMI Broadcast Music Inc. I think Composers Workshop, which is now still running under the leadership of Jim McNeely and Micah Benny. And at the time, Manny Album had said, "Oh, you should you should come to the BMI thing." And and so Manny tried to actually get funding for me to take the train from Rochester, and it didn't in the end work out. But I guess I didn't know that he was really talking me up to Brookmeyer. So when I called Bob, he said, Wow, I've been hearing your name from Manny Album for years. He said, You're a really good writer in Rochester. So I said to him, Well, you know, uh, or I'm sorry. Then he said to me, Well, what else do you do besides writing? And I said, Well, I'm a copyist, a music engraver. And computers were kind of taking over then, but I was still mostly copying by hand. And he said, uh, uh, do you copy by hand or do you copy by computer? And I said, well, I do both, but I prefer to copy by hand. And we kind of wrapped up the conversation. I hung up and I thought, oh, Brookmeyer is like forward thinking, using a synthesizer in his band. He probably only wants computer copying. I probably said the wrong thing. So about a week later, he called up and he said, okay, so I got this project for, I think it was Clark Terry's 70th birthday. And he said, it's a four-movement suite, and I need a copyist. Can you do it? And I want it done in pen and ink. So I said, Okay. And every day for I don't remember how long now, I had to forget because it was so crazy, There were more pages would come FedEx every day in the mail. And I was copying the parts, and I hired two guys that were in my house on different shifts around the clock, proofreading in the dining room where I set up another drafting table. So as I finished every page, they were proofreading. They'd bring it back. If, I, if anything was wrong, I'd fix it. I, want to make, I just up. want to make sure people understand what it was you were actually doing, which is he would send you, like, a score with all of the parts written out, and then you would have to actually copy onto separate pieces of staff paper each individual instrument's part, right? right. Is that the deal? That's exactly right. So you're creating what all the musicians are going to use. He's sending you the master document, and you're breaking out of that what every musician is going to use. Exactly. Yep. Okay. And, that, you know, that's uh, it's been going on for as long as there's been written music. There's been copyists, and now people get a little confused thinking that means you're copying, imitating somebody's music. So now they call them, you know, music engravers, kind of like sanitation engineer for a garbage <laughs> man. But but what I know it is, is a copyist. That's what's been called forever. And so 
uh, that I, I can't remember, but I and I had meant to take a picture of me holding all of those pages taped together of this four movement thirty minute piece, but it was hundreds of hand copied pages, and then it all had to be FedEx to Germany where the concert was, and so that uh, during that time when I was calling Bob with some questions because he was writing fast, I found out later that so Bob is always behind. And then when it gets to the copyist now, the copyist's job is to make the deadline. <laughs> so everything <laughs> rests on the copyist. Now, it doesn't matter how behind the composer was. Now you have to bear the burden of that. No pressure. And, yeah. And uh, actually, to, to make a side note, when, uh, one of the times I told Bob not too long ago, I said, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm working on this thing and deadline's coming up. I'm really behind. And he said, well, that came with the lessons. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the pro- that's where the first thing started, and during that somewhere in there, when I was calling him with questions about, I wasn't sure if he meant this note or that note. I said, you know, I'd really love to take a lesson with you sometime, and he said, okay, well, we can work that out. And he said, um, you know, we'll pick a time, and you can come here. And he was in, uh, I think Hanover, New Hampshire. Then he's in Grantham, New Hampshire now, and he said, you can you can come, and you can decide if you want to work with me, and I'll decide if I want to work with you. And I figured, well, half of this equation is already solved. <laughs> There's only the part about whether he wants to work with me or not. So it ended up being one of the longest uh, days of my life. I flew to New Hampshire. I got there, and fortunately, he listened to a little bit of my music, and he said, okay, I'm, I would be happy to work with you if you want to work with me. And that's where it began. But I, I thought when I was headed there, what if he hears a few measures of my music and he says, sorry, kid, then I'd wish that the plane went down maybe on the way home or something. I don't know. Like... <laughs> So fortunately, that didn't, neither of those things happened, but the plane did get delayed in Philadelphia for like six hours. So in the end, it was a 23-hour loop from when I left my house until when I got back to Rochester. And I got home, and I couldn't remember anything he talked about. I call it cement head. And I, it was like a, a haze as to whether I was in Brookmeyer's studio in Bob's house. And then a few days later, sort of the cement head went away, and, and I remembered the things we talked about. And after that, then there were a lot of phone lessons and and still I talk to him I try to give him a call usually every two weeks or every week and find out what he's up to and what he's working on and I was his copyist for a lot of years and still occasionally do things for him yeah he's just he's just absolutely amazing if I could say that uh, this year he turns 80 and he's currently writing an album for the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra he's still writing and playing great and I've decided with my Eastman, I do a band at the Eastman School of Music, a, a large ensemble. And so on the concert that we're doing in December, which is near his 80th birthday, I'm doing an 80th birthday tribute to Bob Brookmeyer. So, do you know the specific date of that yet, Dave? December 2nd. December 2nd, and that's going to be at the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York. Yes.
So I've got two questions uh, based on that story. Um, mm-hmm. And the first one, I want to go all the way back to the beginning of that story and talk about um, the album that you heard that you said changed your life in a second. Uh, yeah. H- how so? Uh, well, up to that point, I had listened to, uh, well, when I first heard the individualism of Gil Evans, that album, somebody had turned me onto that album, and I, it blew my mind, and I still absolutely love that album. And then I went to audition for undergrad school at Youngstown State University, which is in my hometown, so I was a commuter school, and that's where I did my undergrad degree. And I walked into the rehearsal room where the uh, top jazz ensemble was rehearsing, and they were playing Thad Jones 3-1. and And that blew my mind, and then I fell in love with Thad Jones and studied his music, and, and still 3-1 and one is one of my favorite Thad pieces. And so I was, at, I was studying Youngstown State at the time, and and the baritone saxophone player in the band, he came up to me because he knew that I was doing some writing, and he said, you have to go to record whatever it was, Mart or Time or something in the mall. And he said, they have another copy of this record of Mel Lewis's band with Bob Brookmeyer's writing. So I went there, I bought the record, I put it on, and I can't remember if it's if Ding Dong Ding or Hello and Goodbye opens the record. And I was absolutely memorized, mesmerized, and I felt that, I knew all of this music, a bunch of the dance band music. I listened to Buddy Rich and Maynard Ferguson and Stan Kenton and then Gill and then Thad Jones. And this was a whole new world to me, the way that it wasn't tunes. It was just music that was spinning out of itself. And I didn't even have a slot in my brain for it, but I knew that this was, that I, I, was, I felt that he, in this music, that whoever Bob Brookmeyer was, I knew his name from playing Bob, valve trombone, but I didn't really know who he was at that time, that that he was changing the course of writing for the modern large jazz ensemble. And it just, I wore that record out. So I, I hate to say this, but possibly the most amazing part of that story is that it was still possible in that day to go to the mall and buy a Thad Jones <laughs> Mel Lewis recording. <laughs> That's I, right. I don't think that is possible in any physical location on the planet Earth right now. So uh, so this whole thing, you know, spins your head around, and we've heard, you know, kind of how we've now we've heard what follows from that, and and your your meeting with Brooke Meyer. Now you talk about taking a lesson with him. Now I can get my head around how you take a lesson with a saxophonist if you're a saxophonist or a pianist if you're a piano player. Uh-huh. How do you take a lesson with a composer if you're a composer, especially since you can't actually, for the most part, hear the product of what's happening uh, until some you get a bunch of guys together to play it? How does that work? Of course, studying with Rayburn Wright, even, who had amazing ears, he would just turn the score pages and kind of be bobbing his head in the tempo that you told him the piece was at and hearing the piece going on in his head. And uh, so there are guys that can do that. And in this case, most of the time when I took something to Bob, I had a recording, even a rough recording of what the piece was, although he's certainly able to just look at the full score and, and hear that stuff going on in his head. So a lot of times uh, composers are able to do that because we're used to imagining it, those sounds in our head as we put them on paper. So if you take a lesson with a composer, they're usually able to at least get a good sense of of what the harmonic nature and melodic nature of the piece is. And then a lot of it, even when I teach, a lot of what I talk about is the length of phrases and the shape of the piece, the architecture, I call it, and how it unfolds. So you can see that just by the rhythmic nature of it. I don't know if, uh, if it's really that much different from an instrumental lesson. And, you know, if you have a recording that makes it easier to, you don't have to sit at the piano and kind of bang it out. You can hear and follow and then talk about, well, here, maybe there should be more space here, 
or maybe there should be less space here, maybe the solo that came in should have been a little further into the piece, those kinds of things. And then Bob gave me amazing exercises to do that were very simple. Very simple in theory, but very difficult to do, which was great. And I've been slowly passing those exercises on to people who have taken lessons with me. And so I would fax those to him, and he would play through them on the piano, and then we'd talk, and he would tell me where he thought, you know, that I, w I was doing well and where he would have done it a different way. And uh, so that's kind of, uh, you know, the, it's interesting that uh, I've been also, with those exercises, it was the first time I did exercises for composing. And I've been, I, I now talk about that, you know, we would, two things, we practice our instrument. We warm up on our instruments and then before we play, hopefully, if you're doing the right thing. And you don't just pull it out on the gig and, you know, slap it together and get going. But when we, we work as composers and arrangers, we come in, we sit at the piano, we get the pencil, and if it's not, nothing's happening, ah, it's a bad day, I'll do something else. Instead of, we don't practice writing. If we don't have a job we have to do or something that we're working on for ourselves even, we just don't write those days. We do other things. And then, oh, you know, I'm going to write something. And then we wonder why it's not flowing because we're not doing it every day, even 10 minutes a day, just practicing writing. And so nobody talks about that. So I've been talking about it. Although um, it's funny because I've had a, a similar conversation um, on this kind of topic with a number of poets um, mm -hmm. in another part of my life. And uh, there are the kind of like uh, inspirational, you know, versus like workaday uh, approaches to that where there's the there's the people who, you know, I get up every morning and I write for two hours, you know, whatever, whoever's famous quote that is, I stare at a blank page until blood comes from my forehead. Or whatever. <laughs> right. That's a great quote. <laughs> and uh, and then there's the people who, you know, I put pen to paper when it's something strikes me. Mm -hmm. And so I, it seems like maybe in the case of composition, you could you could maybe make a valid argument in either direction that either either I'm going to sit down and I'm going to work on the mechanics of this, whether I'm inspired to or not, or I'm going to sit down and when something it feels like something's flowing out of me, I'm going to capture that moment. Mm -hmm. uh, does, does that make any sense, that there, maybe there would be more than one approach? Uh, it does make sense. The, the only place that, uh, at least for me, that uh, it doesn't quite work is that if the phone rings and uh, there's a commission to do something, then if if I've been sort of waiting for inspiration, and sometimes inspiration doesn't line up with the deadline of a commission. Fair enough. It's good to have, you know, sort of the wheels are oiled. And actually in the, the days of when I'm doing that and where I'm, when I'm practicing writing, I keep all of that stuff. And I put it in a notebook, a sketchbook, and I've gone and found things that, oh, wow, wow this, I think I can do something with this now. So that and also I've, I've been fascinated for whatever reason lately with, uh, especially lately with Igor Stravinsky. And in all the readings that I've been doing, I mean, we've heard for years, and, you know, it turned out that it's true, that he wrote for four hours every day. And if he had no ideas, he wrote his name forward and backward for four hours. But there was something about the tactile, the pencil, back in the days when people used pencils, I still do, by the way, but a pencil and paper and making the marks and, the, you know, moving your arm, and all of that was part of it for him. And then he called himself an inventor of music, not necessarily a composer. And so for me that all sort of made sense that just to work some every day whenever I can if I'm not working on something specific because those things turn into something specific, if that makes sense. It, it certainly does. Um, and it leads me to ask uh, w one more question about the, the lesson concept, which sure. is that in, a, in, in an instrumental lesson, um, 
at least in the ones that I've had, it, it's more often the case that you are working on kind of specific elements of technique, you know, mm-hmm. concerned with the actual generation of sound from your instrument. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're taking a composition, I mean, that's, that is an entire concept you have birthed, and now you're giving it to someone and saying, hey, do you think my baby's ugly? And <laughs> right. it, it strikes me as that that might be a little more vulnerable position to put yourself in than, hey, am I playing, am I fingering this right? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, getting critique on something as intimate as a composition? Yeah, uh, that's, that's a really good point. I hadn't quite really thought about that too much. I guess that for me, I just I would have to take my child to <laughs> to somebody, and I do think of them as my children, actually, by the way. But and some of them turned out better than others. But uh, you know, that's the way <laughs> it happens in real life too. I guess that's what my parents would say. Yeah. <laughs> but it has to be. Uh, I have to take my music to somebody that first of all, I really, I'm really spoken to by their music. That's the first thing, and then I have to know that that they love music and love creating music so much that they will be gentle with my music and with me, but that I want to know the truth so that I can write better music in the future. So I'm willing to take whatever that criticism is, but you know, it has to be with somebody that I trust that will deliver it in a way that's not mean or, uh, you know, I don't know what the other words would be, but... It it is a delicate thing for sure. So it has to be somebody that I really respect and and love their music and want to know how they do that to be able, for me to be able to say, well, here's my child is 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 he ugly? My guest is Dave Ravello. The Dave Ravello Ensemble has a new record called Facing the Mirror, and uh, you can find out more at DaveRavello.com. There'll, of course, be links at thejazzsession.com. And, you know, Dave, as, as someone who's been listening to this music for, uh, for almost 10 years now, I, I'm just uh, I'm so proud and happy for you that this record exists and uh, really hope a lot of people will check it out. It's certainly uh, deserving of a lot of attention. So thanks, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, and it's just it's good to hear your voice again. It's been too long.
That's the Dave Ravello Ensemble from the new album Facing the Mirror. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. The Jazz Session has an email mailing list, which is a great way to win free music. You can sign up for it at thejazzsession.com. If you're on Facebook, there's a group for The Jazz Session, and I give away music there, too. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed The Jazz Session's logo. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License. Thanks very much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.